Mark chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 14 and read from verse 14 down to verse 23. If you're a guest with us, this continues a story that started back earlier in chapter 7, verse 1, when the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, Jesus has rebuked them. The Pharisees and the scribes want to know why wasn't Jesus' disciples washing their hands before they ate? That ceremonial law, this legalism. And Jesus says, your problem is you don't understand real religion. It's not on the outside. It's on the inside. And in this passage, Jesus turns the volume up even louder. You join me there in verse 14. Grass with us in the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 14. And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, and sexual immorality and theft and murder, and adultery, and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I pray that you would open eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would bring healing and hope, that you would return joy, that Christ will be honored and your people strengthened. And Lord, I pray for those among us that have yet to rejoice and yield in the good grace we have in Jesus, that today, today would be a day when their eyes are open to see. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Connie and I live in an older home. Our house is built in around 1971, I think. 1971, they didn't believe in the size of closets or bathrooms. I guess people didn't have clothes or something in 1971. The closets are small, the bathrooms are small, and our house was originally built and had a a pump, a water pump, had a well, and septic. We are not yet, we've not yet broken that. We've not yet hooked up to city water. That means that when the storms come through like they have in August, when there's a thunderstorm, In this region, you can be guaranteed my electricity is out. It just goes out. 
And if the electricity goes out at my house, it means we also don't have water. So we are immediately taken back to the Middle Ages. <laughs> Not too long ago, the electricity went out and finally it came back on. And when it did, our water did not come back on. The well pump was dead. So I made the phone call the next day and they came out to the yard and it was a marvelous thing to watch. It was a marvelous thing. I stood out there the entire time to watch them pull out the well and all the pipe that goes down to the pump and, and watch the repairman put it all back together. And when the repairman finished putting it all back together, right before he put the cap on it, he poured a cup of bleach down into that well. Said it would kill any bacteria. I said, that sounds like a good thing to me. He told us, though, that we might in the coming days smell and taste Clorox for a little while. So every time I had a glass of water, every cup of coffee, every time I took a shower, in fact, some people ask me, uh, they asked without knowing what had happened, is my hair lighter? <laughs> like I was using sun in or something. I mean, I could, I could taste the bleach, I could smell the bleach. Because the bleach was down in the water source. And every time we touched water, we touched bleach. You wake up one day not feeling well and your symptoms persist and you end up going to the doctor. When the doctor examines you and decides he needs to do a several tests and after those several tests, the doctor comes in with a grim look on his face and he tells you, some of you have had this happen, he tells you that you have cancer. But not just any kind of cancer, he tells you that the cancer is not localized, but it has now gotten into your very bloodstream and has metastasized. Then you know that that cancer has affected everything, even the very source of your lifeblood. What you thought, I mean, it's bad enough to have cancer. What you thought was just a serious medical problem has actually now become a death sentence. Now, <clears throat> I open up with those two brief illustrations and examples because in the text, the great physician, Jesus, is telling his hearers and us that we have a problem that we can't fix. And all too often, we work hard to treat the symptoms. And I'm all for treating symptoms. You have symptoms, they need to be treated. But all too often, we work hard to treat symptoms of our issues, and we never actually get down to the root cause. We try education and culture and reform and correction. When in fact, what we need to save us is a radical change in the human heart. There is no power in the world that can make a bad heart good. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Now, in this text, here Jesus is telling us 
He is telling us why the world is the way it is. Now look, this passage, this passage and this sermon by association are not for the faint of heart. But like an honest doctor, Jesus is going to show us the problem that we have. But unlike any physician that ever lived, Jesus is also going to provide the solution. Because our problem, you like to write things down, you can write this down. Our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. Our problem, not what we do, it's who we are. I tell you what, let's do. Let's go back and uh, let's go back like we have the last couple of weeks. Let's go back and get the context. Let's read it through and then maybe make some observations on the back end of reading it through. We'll, we'll move quickly. Join me there in verse 14. The text says that he called the people to himself. Okay, what had happened before that is that the scribes and Pharisees came down from Jerusalem and they pretty well attacked Jesus because his disciples were not fulfilling what they thought was the right ceremonial law, doing their religion. Jesus excoriates them, but it's just the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in verse 14, Jesus calls everybody over. Come here. I want everybody to hear this. And he says to them two things. Hear me and understand. Let it come inside. Verse 15. This is what he tells the entire crowd. It is a revolutionary statement. There is nothing that is outside a person that by going into that person can defile him. You got it backwards. But the things that come out of a person or what defile it. From the heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You see. Verse 16 uh, is not in most of our translations. You might find it at the bottom of, uh, bottom of your page there. Uh, it might be in the NIV, I can't remember, but it's not in the ESV. Verse 16 is not in most of the manuscripts, so it is left out of most uh, the best translations. But verse 16 has Jesus saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 17, after he dismisses the people, he goes into the house. The disciples gather with him, sort of an after work, getting together, talking about the events of the day. They're sitting around. And when he had entered the house, left the people, his disciples asked him about what he had said. The parable were unclear. In verse 18, you can feel the frustration that Jesus has to his disciples. Are you not? Look what he says. Are you also without understanding? Are you really that dull? I mean, that's, that's sort of the tone of verse 18. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see? So let me just, I'm just going to be as plain as I can be with you kids growing up, you have to be very specific. So let me be very specific with you. And he is in verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart? Let me get graphic with you. It goes into his stomach and is expelled. It, it literally in Greek is, and they go to the bathroom. 
It's what Jesus said to them. Now, okay, now they're, okay, now they're getting it. And he says in verse 20, do you understand verse 20? What comes out of a person? That's, that's what defiles him. Now here comes Jesus giving a radical list in verse 21. There are other lists in the New Testament, a list of vices and sins. This is the only time we have Jesus giving a list. It is not a list that is exhaustive. It is mostly representative, but it's interesting the things that he picks. What comes out of a person, verse 20, is what defiles him, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of man, here comes the list. There are 13 of them. The first one is an overarching. The other 12 come underneath. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft. Here are the Ten Commandments. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting. That was four of the Ten Commandments. Now he turns his attention to a mindset. Wickedness and deceit and sensuality, envy and slander and pride and foolishness. And Jesus now says, every one of those, it's not something that you touched and got you. Verse 23, all of these evil things come from within and they are what defile a person. You see, our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. With that in mind, let's back up and now make some applications of change. How then do we change? What is, what is the road to change? How do we change if we understand that our problem is not what we do, but who we are? How do we change then? Here's the first one. Number one, change. Change starts with comprehension. Change starts when you understand. Some of you here say that you read something and you don't get it. You go ahead and read it again and read it again. You feel like you don't have very good reading comprehension. Well, I'm not talking about reading comprehension. I want you, though, to understand what the gospel is. Let me show you where I get that. Verse 18, he called the people to him and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Akuo, which is just hearing, is like the sound of my voice now. But also, not just hearing it, let that word come inside. Understand, to comprehend. This, this is more than just you agreeing with what I'm saying. This is more than just a general agreement. Here is a Jesus calling you to a full surrender to understand. What do we need to understand? I would suggest there are four or five things in order for you to actually be a Christian that you need to understand. You don't have to understand them fully, but you need to understand them truly. I would say one thing you need to understand is your purpose, your created purpose. Why did God create you? God created you so that you might glorify Him. You do have a purpose on this earth. For however long you might live, God has created you. He did so in His image it makes it so that we respect you because you are created in the image of God to reflect glory back on God. So you understand your created purpose. There's something else you need to understand. We need to understand our state of affairs. That we, we are sinners. Our state of being. We need to understand that 
that the sin in us is not so much that we've made a mistake, we've made bad choices. All of those are euphemisms. The way Paul will describe it, and we'll read from Ephesians later, is that we are, we are dead in sin. Think of death, corpse. Think of all of the putrefaction and rotting. Think of that part of that. That's what we are. Think about our situation that we are in, our state of being. So you need to understand your created purpose. We need to understand, though, that because of our moms and dads and their moms and dads, all the way to Adam and Eve, we inherited this from them. A lot of you have the traits of your parents. A couple summers ago, I got out of the swimming pool and looked in the bay window at our house, walked by the glass and the reflection, and I thought that, uh, why is my dad here? This is my dad. This is me. You have some, you have some uh, traits of your parents. So if you're a bad person, you need to thank your mom and dad for that. That's where you got it. We inherited this tendency. We, we don't have to be taught to do bad things. So our created purpose, we need to understand. We need to understand our state of being. We need to understand that there is only, here's a third thing to understand, only one solution. Only one solution that God has given us. The Bible teaches it. This is why we worship on Sundays, because Jesus is the solution. The solution for our problem, being separated from God, is Jesus. Jesus who lived perfectly like we can't and don't. Jesus then at the cross who takes the wrath of God. It's important to understand that what does Jesus do at the cross? Why the cross? At the cross of Jesus, He takes the punishment you and I deserve. I think Danny Aiken said it, that God killed his son so he wouldn't kill us. A substitute. We understand that, that the solution is Jesus who lived perfectly, died in our place. God has raised him from the dead on a Sunday. It's why we worship on Sundays. And the solution is to believe that. That brings me to another thing we need to understand. The fourth thing I think we should get is the understanding of grace. Why does God save us? Why does He, why does he choose you? Like, why did He bring you here this morning so that you might hear this message and then your heart open up? Was it because you're so special, because you have so much potential? Sometimes we, we wrap the gospel in some weird sentimental thought and say, well, you know, God looked down and saw that you had such potential, so He decided to save you because you would be such an asset to the kingdom. That is not. God looked at us and He saw enemies, people that hate Him and rebelled against Him. They were dead in sin and rotten. There's nothing in us that caught His eye. He, he just in His love and His pure grace made it so that you would be here to hear the gospel, have the chance to be saved. The Bible says that we are saved by God's grace. Nothing we earn. Nothing about us that made God want to love us. We need to understand grace. I'll give you a fifth thing, and I need to move on, that we need to comprehend. It starts when you comprehend genuine repentance. So all that you've heard so far is the gospel. God is holy. We are sinners. He created us in His image. The image of God in us has been disfigured by our sin that separates us from God. The gospel, the only source, the only solution is Jesus who lived perfectly, died on the cross in our place. God raised Him from the dead. All of those are truths 
but they don't mean anything if they're not yours. And that begins with genuine repentance. We would wrap it up in the understanding you have believed Jesus died in your place. You turn from your old self. You turn to Christ and believe. You see, our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. And if we're going to change, change starts when you comprehend, when you understand. That's the first point. Let me give you a second point. We'll pick up the pace. Number two. Change takes root when we reject shallowness. Shallowness. It's a terrible thing to be a shallow Christian. I don't know if you are a Christian at all if you're a shallow Christian. There seems to be no room for that. See the deeper issues and realize that we need a radical change. Let me show where I get that. Verses 15. Let's just take verse 15. Jesus says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile. You see that word defile? Make common. They go into him and can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are those that defile him. You see that twice, the word defile? If you read the whole passage from verse 14 to verse 23, the word defile is used five times, which is interesting because it's only used six other times in the whole New Testament. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times it's used by Jesus. All 11 times that the word defile is used, it is used to talk about the holiness of God and our sinfulness before Him. Now, all too often, modern-day Christianity and modern-day church has done one of several things with, with a church service. All too often, modern-day Christianity has turned worship into a a carnival-themed gathering where you have a movie-themed worship service. I can't can't imagine. Or or it becomes a a, a prosperity-driven sort of therapy session. Or worse, it becomes some sort of bigoted, legalistic oppression. And what Jesus is saying to the people is, all of that is wrong. It's the heart. They have a heart issue. It's the, same, it's the exact same thing that Jeremiah said. Jeremiah 17, 9. Remember what he said? That the heart, the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look, all the behavior management in the world And I believe in discipline. All the discipline in the world can't change a heart. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees and the scribes? Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. There are people sitting in this room right now, right this second. And it looks like you got it together. You're nothing more than a tombstone that's beautiful covering a heart that's dead. And it doesn't have to be like that. By the power of God at the cross of Christ, God will fill you change you, forgive you, 
and save you. You see, change, change takes root when we reject shallow religion. I tell you what, let's do. Let's go to a third point and we'll make it quick. We'll take the whole thing. Let's take the whole rest of the passage for the third point. Number three, change is complete when you get depravity. Two things you got to get a hold of. This is what's going to bring it around. Here's the gospel. Depravity and grace. Two things you got to get right. So let's just go through the passage. Verse 17 and 18, the disciples are still really dull. Verse 17, verse 18, it says, are you really that dull? Verse 19, it gets very graphic so that he can help them understand. I'll just put it in plain language to you. So he does in verse 19. And then in verse 20, verse 20, 21, 22, and 23, it's a good place to pause. And, and there you have Jesus giving us an explanation of depravity. In fact, if you want to write things down, you'd like to write them down, you can write down the doctrine of total depravity. Two words. It's an old doctrine. It's a misunderstood doctrine, total depravity. Because when we use the word depraved, if we call somebody depraved, we really are thinking of somebody that's, I mean, that's terrible beyond belief, twisted. And so you say totally depraved, you think, well, somebody is just really just just a terrible, heinous, criminal monster. That's not what total depravity is. That's not what it is. Total depravity is that the well, the well is polluted. It's tainted. It doesn't seem like there's much in there. A cup of bleach is not very much, but it's enough to taint the entire thing. That everything, all of our conscience, everything about who we are, all of us, every part of us, all of our thinking has been tainted by sin, totally depraved. The old Puritans used to say that even the tears of our repentance need to be repented of. Verse 20, <clears throat> verse 20 tells us that the most deadly contamination is not what I touch... The most deadly contamination is what's in my heart. And then in verse 21, Jesus gives, from verse 21 to verse 23, He gives a remarkable representative list. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's worth us going through. Let's start there in verse 21. <clears throat> verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. You might want to circle that. Come evil thoughts. Dia logizomai. It literally is evil self-talking. Evil rolling things around in your mind. This is a general statement. All the rest of them will come up under this one. This is an overarching statement, but it has implications for everything we believe about how sin works. It's not what you do, it's what's inside. For from within come evil thoughts, ponderings and desires and Schemes and plans and attractions. Daydreams and intentions and motivations. It's not just action. It's not just action that is sin. It's not just what we do that is sinful. But what is behind the action? Jesus says that from the heart come the evil thoughts. And then he gets us 12. I'll go through them pretty quickly. But it's interesting to me. 
It's worth noticing. We don't, I, it doesn't show up in my translation. It probably doesn't in yours. But the first six sins are plural. He starts off with a big one. Sexual immoralities. Sexual immoralities. It, that's the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word porn, pornography. It's a general term. It's one of those blanket terms that covers all of the sexual sins that are contrary to God's will. So you would say premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexuality, transsexuality, whatever else you can come up with that is contrary to God's will, it's there. And notice that it's in, it's in plural. Sexual immoralities, as if to say it's just not one thing, one time. It's every, every click. Every one of those pages, it's immoralities. They're all plural on the way. When you get down, the next one is the word theft. The next four, by the way, are from the Ten Commandments. So Jesus just picks up something they already know. The next four are from the Ten Commandments. Theft is taking something from another person that is not your own. That's the Eighth Commandment. Murder that is killing an innocent person. That's the Sixth Commandment. Adultery, which is violating the marriage covenant, that's the seventh commandment. Coveting, that is the tenth commandment, it sort of covers all the commandments. That's a desire for more at the expense or exploitation of another person. It's coveting. Then he turns his attention to, to wickedness. Wickedness, it's, it's now singular. Wickedness is behavior that is deliberately mean, cruel. Deceit, um, deceit is like Judas. When Judas, Judas uh, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, that's a deceit. To look like a friend, but then trick. The word sensualities, or sensuality, is, that's an unbridled, shameless living. It's, um, it's, it's like a lacking moral discernment or restraint. Think of the... Uh, Think of the movies you've seen of terrible college parties where people are laying out, throwing up because they drank so much. That's the idea of sensuality and where it goes. The word envy is literally evil, I, a jealousy that wanders into resentment. It's never satisfied. That word slander comes from the word blasphemy, to say something evil about somebody or about God is slander. The word pride, we know this one, it's arrogance or to think that you're superior to someone. And the last one, what a good one to end on. Foolishness. It's appropriate here to, to end on foolishness. What did the psalmist tell us in Psalm 14:1? That the fool says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Or... Or, in verse 23, as Jesus says, All these evil things come from within. That's what defiles the person. It's not unwashed hands. It's an unwashed soul. Our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. Thanks be to God, that is not where we end. The gospel tells us that God has done something for us. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says we were dead 
and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when you were dead and your trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, so that, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, by grace you have been saved. It's through faith. It's not of your own. So that nobody can boast. You see, you are, you are His workmanship. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. And Jesus Christ is the solution to our problem. If you join me now as we pray together, close our time of sermon, go into a time of singing with your heads bowed this morning. As we go to the Lord in a moment of commitment, I'm going to ask all of you here that are believers transformed by the power and the grace of God that you would pray now for someone you know is not. I want to talk to any of you that are without Christ. But you heard today that He is available. His desire is to save you. That the gospel is for you. That Jesus lived and died in your place. If this morning you want to talk to someone about what that means, what it looks like to become a Christian, how you can become a Christian, when we sing, our pastors will be down here. Part of our tradition is, is opening up an opportunity for you to respond. So if you'd like to talk to a pastor, they'll be down front. You come forward as we sing. If that makes you uncomfortable, then we don't want to keep you from understanding the gospel. Our pastors will be out in the lobby. It's a good time for you to stop by a pastor and say, look, I, I'd like some clarification. What does it look like to be a Christian? What does it look like to even join this church? God has spoken to your heart today through his word. We invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you for the chance to worship. Thank you for the words of Christ that remind us of our position and need and the gospel of Christ that saves us. I pray you save people today. In Jesus' name we ask.